If you have your Bibles, whether electronic or in paper form, turn to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32, we're going to be looking at the first part of Numbers chapter 32, specifically the first 23 verses, maybe a smattering right after that. Boy, my computer finally digests the software there. It finally comes up right, so hopefully so. Let me get all lined up here. I've just been busting at the seams to to get to here this week. So, you know, uh, maybe you have a a Lars bar or something in your pocket you can eat in case we go long. I'm I'm kidding. If you're near, like, oh, this is not the church for us, honey. Let's go. Uh, Last Sunday, as I said, was a sort of a different kind of Sunday, and it, to me, was a tremendous blessing to see uh, people move to pray, to understand what God can do when He moves in a people in biblical revival. And I think, too, in the, in the ethos of our church, as we begin to talk about more about what revival is, we need to preface it with what is called biblical revival. Because there's so much today that passes for revival that is not. But biblical, biblical revival is God manifesting on the earth. That's what we heard about last Sunday. Now also too, uh, to be sure, biblical revival is brought about by God's people seeking Him. And by God's people being obedient in their life. And not settling for good enough. And we all can be like that. So what I want to do then is simply put out to you this. If at any time during our worship time together, let's try to responsibly, appropriately break out of the mindset that we can only do this or that at that time. This, this, this is a stage, but it's also our altar. The pillows are there for your knees, okay? That's really, they're not there for decoration, and they do help, okay? Now, if you can't get on your knees, please don't, because then we'd have to lift you up. but, (laughs) but But if at any time, from now on, during the singing, during the preaching, if God is burdening you for somebody, don't just stand there. Don't just sit there. Bring it to the altar. Do so respectfully, appropriately, to the corner. Bring it to the altar. Because I think that what has hurt America more than anything in our time is a dry altar. Dry from the absence of tears, from the absence of burden. It's not about what's good enough anymore. It's about what God can do. And that's what we have to seek. I want to talk to you today then along these lines. I'm trying to pull all this together as best I can. The dangers of spiritual pragmatism and the forfeiting of God's best. What a title, right? JT's always chewing on me about the titles because he has to put them up and they're kind of long. They're they're becoming Puritanesque because Puritans wrote titles that were about a paragraph. But the dangers of, of spiritual pragmatism and the forfeiting of God's best. That's, that's what I want you to think about today. And we're going to define these terms here in a minute. But I want to tell you a story. 
that I read out of my new book that I've been reading, uh, The Crucified Life by A.W. Tozer. One of, it's a fabulous, just fabulous book. And what he was talking about in it is the fact that the Protestant church, much like the Roman church, has settled for, for externals, or what he calls externalism. Everything is external. What you see, what you can, what you can appropriate by what you see. And so he writes, um, the temptation to go outward toward words, traditions, forms, customs, and habits is too much to resist. We carry on our backs whole loads of traditions that have no place in the work of God. Now, before, in the old days, traditions were, you know, these are the kind of uh, songs you sing, uh, even though if they weren't good, I mean, even back in those days, they were still having fights over songs. Or this is the kind of, these are the kind of clothes you wear. And to be sure, we're not saying anyone should be indecent either. Or, but there's a lot of things that have crept. This furniture has been here since Jesus. He probably put it here so you can't move it. Okay. And uh, there's just all kinds of traditions that have come into the church. And what he's saying is many times we get to focusing on that to a fault because we lose sight of what those things are supposed to do. Now, here's the story about tarnished stained glass windows. A.W. Tozer writes, whenever I'm in a... Uh, he wrote, he's, he's long deceased now. But when I, whenever I'm in a city, I make time to visit some of the cathedrals and great religious centers, whether Catholic or Protestant. In one city, a man took me around and told me, these windows that you see are exact replicas of famous cathedrals in Europe. The artist went to Europe, copied with exquisite precision and the stained glass windows of that famous cathedral and brought them back to this country. This is a perfect replica of such and such cathedral of all these beautiful stained glass windows. Then he said something rather shocking. I want to point out something to you. You notice here and there uh, what appears to be spots and splotches. Notice how down along the edge, close to the frame, there's a bit of discoloration. I noticed this and said, sure, these windows are hundreds of years old and have stood for centuries as nations and kingdoms rose and fell, and they naturally got washed only by the rains. Now they've collected on themselves a certain tarnish and discoloration and the dust of the centuries. There were those who believed that the dust and discoloration actually improved and mellowed the windows and made them look better than they were before. So when the artist went over to copy them, they did not wash the windows, nor did they try to copy the windows without the dirt. But they copied dirt and windows so that what we have here is not only the artistry and the stained glass windows of the cathedral, but we have in addition perfectly reproduced the centuries-old dust that gathered on the windows. Those windows, Tozer writes, are a perfect illustration of what happened with Israel, what happened with the early church of Christ, and what happened with every order that has been established and every new denomination that has ever been born out of an earnest desire to bring men to God. They become like those tarnished stained glass windows. The dust of the centuries gets on them and become a part of their beliefs and part of their practices, so they are hardly able to tell which is of God and which is simply the accumulation of tarnish from the centuries. And that is exactly what we have done in our time. Do not imagine for a minute 
that we have been without our prophets and seers who have stood and warned us and tried to bring us back to God. God still has those who are not content with superficial worship. They are not at all, they are not of all one denomination, but they are discontent with surface religion. They long to recapture the true inwardness of the faith and they insist upon reality. They do not want anything artificial. They want to know that whatever they have is real. They would rather it be small and real than large and unreal. And he writes, And so it is better to have a little church that is real than a big church that is artificial. It is better to have a simple religion that is real than to have a great ornate ceremony that is only hollow and empty. That's A.W. Tozer, The Crucified Life. I write that, or I read that simply to share with you the importance of evaluating what we do and why we do it. And I'm here to say today that I think many of the, the reasons why we do what we do is because it works. Well, at least on the outside. That's what pragmatism is all about after all, as we'll see. If it works, do it. And the Christian church has, has brought that into play. Now, Psalm 133 and Amos 3.3 say some complimentary truths. Psalm 133 writes, says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The reason that I bring this up in light of what we're talking about is, is because we have to go forward as a church together. That's the unity part. And what this psalm bears out is when we walk in unity towards God together, in the light of the scripture, which is why I like to use uh, prefixes on things or, or uh, illuminating words to define things like biblical revival that sets it apart from what's normally heard because I'm trying to be specific when we go along that way together we have a unity that the writer of this psalm says is just as precious as the anointing oil that consecrated Aaron the high priest and in such profusion in such abundance that it went from the top of his head where they poured it, it went down along his beards, got onto his outfit, and went all the way to his feet. So we're covered then with that unity when we go together towards God. What we heard about last Sunday is a church called Ebenezer Baptist Church of 175 members in Saskatoon, Canada that prayed for nine years in unity together and God moved in a miraculous way because at the very end of the day all revival is biblical revival is God period okay and and then notice Amos 3 3 can two walk together unless they are agreed well well no they can't it's like those three-legged races you got to get synced up or you're never going to make it anywhere so I think the Lord in our day of 2021 is moving. As I've been hearing, I talk to my pastor friends, only a few of them, but as I talk to them, we all share the same heartbeat of recapturing the power and the design that the church is supposed to have free from externals. 
built upon the power that only God provides. So that when people say, why is that happening there? The only plausible explanation is God. You know, I'm just going to mention this in passing. It's hard to believe that in, in uh, bad at math, man, it's 30, 50. So it's hard to believe in less than 50 years or 50 years about that what's going on in Canada today matches what went on in 1971. That revival that happened in Saskatoon and the, and, and the mindset of those people to seek the Lord. Look at Canada today and how they're operating and what they've done to their churches. Don't think for a second that that can't happen here. They steamrolled right through their constitution. From what I've read, and I don't quite understand the Canucks very well, but from what I've read, they're pretty similar to us in language of freedom of religion and those kind of things. And look in what hap- look at what happened. So, when Travis got up here today and said, you know, we should, he says it all the time, we, all, we should be grateful because we literally don't know how much longer we have like this. Then it's going to cost us a lot more to do this. Okay? When we go together in unity, when we go together with a heartfelt vision of God sending revival on His people, it's like that oil that covers us from head to toe. And do you know what that oil represents? The Holy Spirit of God. That's right. He's the power. He's the fragrance. He's the illuminator. He's the convictor. He's the assurer. He does it all. We simply are taken captive. Simple. I know it's not, you can't write a lot of books on that, but now, Numbers 32. Verse 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer, the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elalah, Shabam, Nebo, and beyond, some names. The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And hey, your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, verse 5, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do, now get, get this, do not take us over the Jordan. When I read that, I thought, why would you say such a thing? Because over the Jordan, on the west side, is Canaan. That's the promised land. That's the land that God marked out specifically for His people. Now, if you don't understand where we're at here, they have progressed. God's taken them in to possess. They defeated uh, the king of Assyria, uh, Sion, king of Assyria, and um, they did all that, and, and as they're going through and they've got lots of livestock, they said, boy, it's a pretty good cattle country. Why don't we just stay here? I mean, it works for us. 
And then they go to Moses and say, we've got an idea. We've got livestock. And you're going to, if you read through this whole thing, that comes up a lot. The thing that I, that I want to point out is the east side of the Jordan is not the land that God promised to them. It's simply the land on the east side of the Jordan. But they said, do not take us over the Jordan. There's an old hymn or an old song. Some of you older folks may remember uh, that when I cross over Jordan or there's a refrain. Because that, that in, as we sing it, that uh, is uh, illustrating heaven. You know, I can't wait to cross over Jordan. And so I just think as I read this, I can hear, don't take me to heaven. There's, this is good cattle country. Someone knock me in the head. Because that's not something that God's people, that's not an attitude that, that God's seeking people should possess. This is what pragmatism is. Oh, really? I'll show you. Pragmatism is defined as an approach to things that focuses on the practical or logical response. Addressing problems logically and practically. The way to determine truth is to examine practical results. If it works, do it. I promise you that I have the simplest way to remove that window. I can get it out of there in five minutes flat. Just give me a sledge. I'll remove every one of them. And it's obviously the right way you do it because it works. And you're all thinking, that's, pra that's pragmatism. Farmers are really bad for being pragma pragmatic because out of necessity, we have to fix things and it works. And we'll, you know, we do. <laughs> until, until, you know, we see flywheels run off down the field on their own volition and we're like, should have fixed the bearing and not have just welded the cotter pan in. <laughs> okay, so, but, you know, we have those moments. Now, here's what Tim Chalice said in contrast to opposing what pragmatism is and its dangers. The obvious danger of pragmatism in the church is that we lose our focus on the absolute standard God has given us in His Word. When we lose that focus, the church is on the slippery slope to becoming like the world, or shall I say, stained glasses and all. Okay, And then when we discard God's standards, we must depend on our own deeply flawed standards. We begin to trust in ourselves and lose our trust in God. The way to make this thing fly is do what? Well, we've done a big old study, and we've taken a big poll, and we've read some books on how to do this, and here's the way we think God wants us to do it. And someone says in the back, hey, did y'all pray much about that? What? Well, it's assumed, right? I mean, you can, but after all, you got to do stuff. And this is what works. It's not the way that God wants to do it. How many of you think you're spiritual pragmatists? We all are to a degree. We all are. If I, w if I may, before you read Joshua 22, I, I want to just go down through the verses here a little bit, and then we'll get into Joshua here. So verse 5. They, they said to Moses, Don't take us over the Jordan. And Moses said to the children of Israel... Or I'm sorry, Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben. Now Moses is a little hot. Boy, those people bothered him. Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? 
I, I want to bring this up. God's design for the deliverance from bond, out of bondage in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan and the peace of Canaan was they were a, a nation of, of people. They were to be together. They were to conquer together. They were to live together. They were to worship together. They were a family. They were supposed to be distinct. And now they're proposing what? Division. And bailing on their brethren that needs to go run out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, which God said he would do. That's why Moses is like, not again. Because he drove them. They drove them crazy. And so, verse 7. Now, while, now, now why? <laughs> I like this. Moses is just. Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Why? (laughs) He's just so hot. Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. You all remember that whole thing? Sent out the spies. They came back and said, look at these big grapes, but we're just little grasshoppers and they'll kill us. And they only had two guys that said they won't. Joshua and Caleb. And everybody listened to the, the majority. And Joshua came like, so now we get to have a tan for 40 years because of you. And and God put them in circles because this is the hard part, especially when you're of the reformed mindset like myself. God is completely sovereign in everything that he does. But we live and we make decisions. And sometimes God allows us to have what we want doesn't change his outcome it just means that to expose the reality of where we are because God doesn't play games he brings us along slowly so that we will learn where we are and he did that exceedingly fine for 40 years an 11 day journey turned into 40 years round and round and round in the desert That's where they lived. The whole while. One of the things that A.W. Tozer uh, wrote in this book too. He said, God delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt. They were delivered. When When I become a Christian, I am delivered from the penalty of my sin. I'm also delivered from its practical grip. That means that I can't say any longer, I can't help it. Well, that's half right. I can't help it. But now I have the Holy Spirit of God, the Comforter, the Paraclete, in me, empowering me to do obedience, to be obedient to God. So the sin doesn't have a grip. It's just if I choose to get to lean into it and say, I really want to eat the whole package of Oreos, not just one. Okay. So, or all of the brisket not just a bite well a little so i'm delivered but then he says in his book we're headed towards canaan but it's scary over there but it's so good too how will we ever do it and we forget god and his ability to provide and god's power to get us through it because they knew they had to conquer once they got there. And, but God said, I'll be with you and run everybody out. It all works. And so Tozer writes, like, like those, those early 
Israelites. We are all somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. Back and forth. Some days a little closer to Canaan. Some days a little closer to Egypt. But we just can't quite ever go in. I don't want to be that way. Pragmatism says, probably just best to run around the desert. Because after all, pragmatism is what got him in that bind to begin with. We're little bitty guys. They're really tall giants. What are we going to do? Well, have you not seen the Shekinah glory every day? Have you not seen the sea part? Have you not seen the plagues in Egypt? Does he have to draw you a picture? Oh, he's done better. He's right there. Ask him. But we do so quickly forget the abilities of God. It's so easy to focus on the monsters. It's so easy to focus on the negative things. And so we're some days a little closer to Canaan and some days a little closer to Egypt, but we never quite go in. Verse 9, When they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given him. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. And there's your answer, Christian. If I may, just park here a second. It's like Brother McLeod asked, said on the video last Sunday, if, if God is pictured as a river, mighty river, and He fills to the full, then why aren't you full? Why am I not full? And the only thing I can figure in my own life is there are areas of my life that are not wholly following Him. You don't have a right to possess the east side of the Jordan. Now I'm going to develop this in a foreign, but God's design is you go all the way into Canaan. To live in victory doesn't mean you don't have hardships, doesn't mean you don't struggle. It means though that you go into life in, under the power and the, and the uh, uh, compelling of the Holy Spirit guiding you. You have Jesus walking with you. You're not alone because he's risen, remember? He's alive. We don't live like it many times. Verse 12, and he says, Except Caleb the son of Jephthah and the Kenizzite and Joshua the son of Nun. Now notice their heart. They have wholly followed the Lord. What was the difference basically between these two and the rest of the ten? They believed God. But what's more, they They had a deep, passionate pursuit of God. They did. I love Caleb's statement when he's getting ready to settle his mountain. I'm 80-something years old, and I'm just as strong today as I was then. Do I not get my mountain? And of course they said, you have your mountain. (laughs) And God gave him his mountain. Notice verse 13. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, verse 14, Moses is saying, look, 
You have risen in your Father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following Him, He will once again leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy the people. What I bring that up is just that Moses was concerned that if Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, hey, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan, we don't want to cross over, that the rest of the tribes would be like, well, heck, there's a big chunk of people. What are we supposed to do? And why are they doing, why are they breaking off like? Why do you think it hurts so bad when people leave a church after they've been a member there for years? It hurts so bad. They don't want to take the problem. They don't want to deal with the problem. They don't want to get through the problem. They don't want to forgive. They don't want to, and, and, and they give up and they part ways and it hurts. There's a river of indifference between them and the church from then on and it's no good. And that happens so many times everywhere. Well, they had in verse 16 a good idea. They, they came near to him and said, hey, we have an idea. This is the pragmatism part. We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock. Now, there's livestock again. Clearly, what were they concerned about? Livestock. And our cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will go armed, or we, we will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received her inheritance or his inheritance, for we will not inherit with them. That's a big thing to say. Get it? It's a big thing to say. We will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. Only because you're asking for it. You're creating this thing. Then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if your arm if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the, for the war and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, what does it say? Be sure your sin will find you out. And it happens every time. So he says, uh, build cities and so on. And I want to skip down to verse 29. And Moses said to them, if the children of Gad, or he, um, verse 28. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest, because Aaron had died, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said, if the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. That was the conciliation. Verse 30 is really important. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. So clearly, where did Moses want them? In the land of Canaan. This was an idea hatched by them, and it was all given from pragmatism. And you know what? They did that. 40,000 of them set out, and they stayed out for about seven years helping them conquer, I, I, something to that effect. 120,000 or so remained behind there in Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. They did their thing. They came back. And as soon as they came back, they said, you know, because pragmatism always has an underbelly you don't think about. We're so far away from them, we should build us a monument so that we won't forget God. 
Now, God had made a law earlier that said, don't build altars that I don't say to build. Because if you do, idolatry is at the door. You're going to get in trouble. So it says uh, that they did that. And Joshua chapter 22 is all about this altar that they built. Then the rest of the, the, rest of the Israelites on the east side said, or the west side, what have you done? They came ready for war. They were going to knock them out. And here's what they said. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Pragmatism sounded good in the beginning. They had lots of cattle. They thought it would work out. We hatched a plan to go. Now, it wasn't what God's design was, but Moses allowed it. They came back across, they built an altar so they wouldn't forget. Their brethren heard of it, and no sooner had they gotten finished vanquishing the enemies over there that now they're gotten fight among themselves almost. Pragmatism does those kinds of things. When you depend on yourself and you depend on your own insights, this is where you get hung up. You can't anticipate these things. So then they come back ready for war, and this is what they tell them. You, it's, oh, you people. And there's just, they're without words. And they said, get over on the right side of the river, essentially. Get, notice what, get close to where the Lord's tabernacle stands. I like that. Take possession among us. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You must be a part of the body. You must be. Or there's, you say pragmatically, if I go around people, I, I stand to get hurt. Yeah, you do. Because we're all a bunch of sinners. But we're the Lord's body. And the Bible says that we are all one in Him. And He is the commonality that we have together. And our first and foremost responsibility is to please the Lord. I say it all the time. We are only collectively what we are individually. If you want to see what we're like on the week, look around right now. I can guarantee you that in the case of Ebenezer Baptist Church in 1971, there was an electricity in the atmosphere of their church that was growing. Now, it did start out like, but it, nine years it increased because the people through the week were on their knees you know when he said they had 24-hour prayer what he did what he meant there's another video that i followed up with that one and he said what they did was they took the clock 24 hours in a day right and they divided it up into 15 and 30 minute increments and they assigned it to everybody everybody could sign up whatever they so there was prayer going on 24 hours a day seven days a week for biblical revival so when they came together to worship on a sunday morning how do you think the atmosphere of the church was i i don't know but i can give you a word expectant there was nothing pragmatic about it he had already tried that if you remember brother mcleod talked about how we tried to do evangelism you know you can't do that without praying and we tried to have all these people in and get everybody jazzed up externals don't work so they went to the old ways. The God of the Bible. Not a recreated man. The Jesus of the Bible. God in the flesh. Not a 
sub-level God-man, but the God. And he says to us, his promise, I will send you another helper. And he will dwell in you. And he will teach you all things and bring to mind all things that I have said. And you are to be a living, breathing witness for Christ on this earth. And when you aren't distracted with the, with the big giants, and you're not distracted with pragmatic attempts at trying to be a good Christian, then you will only have left as an option what the Scripture says. You wake up, you praying, you reading your Bible. And you know, so many times in my prayer life, the Bible informs what I pray. I think that's how it's supposed to be. Because I'm going along reading, I'm like, oh yeah, gosh, i got to cover that. But look, the Lord's tabernacle stands. Take possession among us. Well, they had another pragmatic approach to solve the problem. If you read through Joshua 22, they said, we just did it to be safe or our kids wouldn't have any trouble in going after other idols. Don't be mad at us. It, we did it out of the innocence of our heart because you guys are so far away and it all works. And they're like, okay, fine. We're going to go back in 722 B.C. The king of Assyria, whom Jonah had preached to in Nineveh, came and wiped, he, he took, he basically, he run them out. He took them captive, and that's where they went. 500 years later, I believe, no wait, 200 years later, that's when the other side, on the, on the west side of the Jordan, went into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, or the Babylonian captivity. And what I want to say on this is that simply this. The pragmatism that we've isolated today in Numbers 32, the, the grass looks so good here, set the, 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 the parts in motion for the divided nation, the divided kingdom. It had a natural boundary. You hear about the Samaritans in the New Testament, right? You, you remember reading about how you know, Jesus even was talking to the Samaritan woman and they're like, you don't suppose to talk to her. She's got two marks against her. Number one, she's a sheep. And number two, she's a Samaritan. And Jesus is like, oh boy, you people, right? But the Samaritans were created so the livestock could eat. That's where they came from. Sorry, that's just how it is. And while God allowed it, he did, <laughs> Their intention, the intention was in Canaan. So I want to I just get ready to wrap this up to say, um, i got some more verses, I don't have time to, to cover, but yeah, I'll just end that. I want to cover up by saying this. As we pursue God in revival, as we pursue the Lord in what He wants us to be in a very trying time, we can... Look at the news and go, what are we going to do? Well, pragmatically, <laughs> we should keep an AR-15 right here. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do those things. We do what they did in the old days, the really old days. We wet the altar. There's never a time when it should be bare. We take the Word of God and we live in it. We combine it with the burden to pray and we ask for more burden.
And we pray and we intercede for those we know are lost. We pray and we intercede for those we know struggle. And we lean on God. And we pray for God to revive his church, at least in America, beginning with us individually, so that we'll have the power to do so. Because without power to do that, it will never happen. So that reminded me of a hymn then out of my hymn book. Some of you may have heard this. This is called Take Time to Be Holy. 446 in the hymn. I'm just going to read the words. I'm not going to sing them because I can't sing. Take time to be holy. Speak, speak often with thy Lord. Abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friend, friends of God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessings to seek. Now, that's the first line. Take time to spend time with God. Second line, take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct his likeness shall see. So, again, spending time with Jesus Take time to be holy. Let him be thy guide. And run not before him whatever betide. In joy or in sorrow, still follow thy Lord. And looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Because it's an ugly world. And then last verse 4. Take time to be holy. Be calm in thy soul. I, like, I think that's neat at the end. Each thought and each motive beneath his control you can only do that when you're walking in the spirit thus led by his spirit to fountains of love thou thou soon shalt be fitted for service above on the other side of the Jordan church I believe with all my heart here at Northridge that God is doing a work among us. I believe it is exactly on time, exactly as how he wants it to go. And what concerns me now and what I'm most interested in hearing is not so much what I see out here on Sunday, but what you're doing through the week. Are you passionately pursuing the Lord in private prayer with your Bible open, knowing the seriousness of the hour and saying, God, but for you we perish. Lord, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Lord, unless you come down in power and heal us from our tarnished stained glass proclivities, nothing changes. So the invitation today simply is, are you going to stay, which side of the Jordan are you going to stay on? JT's going to come. If you're here today, perhaps you've heard me preach or whatever, if you're here, you have. Do you know Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that is eternally God? The Jesus that is 
Emmanuel, God with us, do you know Him? Do you know Him by faith, through grace alone? Do you know Him? Because I can tell you this, if you're trying any other way to gain some kind of heaven, and you're seeking to go around God the Son, you are an idolater, and you must repent. I don't care your heritage or your tradition. It didn't matter when the king of Assyria came. Turn to Jesus and live. Repent of your sin and be born again. Cry out for mercy and ask Him to save you. And Christian, if you find yourself fighting to just pray, I'm glad at least you have a pulse there. That's a good sign. Capitalize on that and say, God, I got a little. Give me more. And may your five minutes in the morning turn to 50 minutes, turn to an hour. And you say, I can't pray like that. You find yourself praying all day long. God knows where you are and what you can do. I just wonder if we turn in to what God has done before, if he might do it again. You come as JT plays.